Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Back to Truck Up podcast. I'm James Rooster Bow, and I'm here with Justin Super Trucker Martin. And today we have a very special guest with us. But before we get started, I want to thank our sponsors, OTR Solutions, the Factor Programs and Solutions, taking the trucking companies to a whole new level. We just did a whole podcast on everything these guys bring to the table and the success stories that come from working with them. But for now, head on over to otrsolutions.com slash BTU to learn more. Connect with our dedicated BTU team. Justin, we have a very special guest in the studio with us today, don't we? Yeah, we have Mike Millard here with us. Uh, Mike, I've been following him on TikTok for a while, and uh, it's been a lot of fun. He does a lot of these little Q&A videos. He's been driving for a while and very knowledgeable on all kinds of topics and knows his stuff. And that's a very dangerous combination. (laughs) <laughs> on the internet mike would you like to introduce yourself sure uh mike millard uh i'm an old guy so i uh, i guess i started driving back in 76 with the army they they had me hauling jet fuel uh from seven i i uh, kind of took a break from driving until uh 1992 so the army taught me how to do mainframe computers so i learned transistor to transistor logic and uh, that's where i think i got my attention to detail at uh, when the uh, computers crashed in 1991 and we went for mainframes to desktop, I took a job driving truck. So I did that from 1992 to 1996. Uh, from 96, uh, I kind of, again, uh, I had a small family. My youngest son was born, so uh, my middle son was born, so I had I got away from trucking and went back to school. From there, I went to, uh, in 1997, I went to work for the state of Colorado at the Scale-Up in Cortez. And then from Cortez, I worked there until 99. Uh, in the backtrack a little bit, 1998, I actually went to the North American Standard Truck Inspection Course in Denver to become a, a safety inspector. Uh, in 1999, I got hired by the FMCSA. At that time, it was the Office of Motor Carrier, actually. So when the uh, FMCSA was born in uh, January 2000, I was already on board. But in uh, what February or so 2002, I became the hazmat specialist for the FMCSA. But yeah, so I did that, and uh, I went. I became a uh, went to work for the Department of Energy after my divorce, and then in 2011, I started my uh, little consulting firm, AWM Associates, uh, as a favor to uh, Paul Taylor with the Truckers Justice Center out of Minnesota. Not to be confused with Truckers uh, Movement for Justice. <laughs> nope, not be confused. <laughs> good. <laughs> yeah. No, they're good friends of the show. All right. Well, uh, so we started off in the army as a tanker driver correct yep you know actually when i got out of let's see i believe it was right when i was trans changing from a hospital to actually be in truck driver i was actually going to try to get into rv as a transportation specialist took a well the difference was i wasn't a transportation specialist i wasn't a motor truck uh, driver i was a 76 whiskey so my job was petroleum so that's what i did that's all i did i hauled fuel i moved fuel i refueled aircraft and Luckily, I never got into the uh, armor side of it, so I didn't have to mess with tanks and trucks and all that good stuff. And when you yeah, got I'm out of the to... army, did you have a did you have a CDL, or did you have to like still reapply? Oh no, uh, I didn't get my CDL until 1992. I went to school at the uh, U.S. Truck Driving School up in Wheat Ridge, Colorado. That's a problem I used to hear a lot with um, uh, a lot of vets leaving uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. It was they would have guys with you know combat medical training, truck driver training, you know, all all the training in the world, the best training in the world, really with the with the army and none of it would um, convert over to civilian life. Well, to be honest, when you look at tactical vehicles, there's a world of difference. And then not to mention the way the army uh, operates convoys. So it it is kind of apples and oranges, to be honest, because there are no, uh, 
you know, you don't load it freight docks. You don't uh, have to deal scales. You don't have to uh, deal with IRP, IFTA, and all that good stuff. So it is just two totally different worlds. Your your learning curve is pretty significant. Well, I, I can see that. But I just mean as far as like, they don't cover any of that on the CDL test. They just want to make sure you can uh, back a truck and stop at your railroad, uh, railroad crossings. <laughs> right. And, but, you know, honestly, with the military, the same thing, though. I mean, it's an entirely different concept. You have a co-driver. You have uh, backup people that, that, to guide you as you back up. So there's just it's just a different operational uh, phase that you have to adjust from. And granted, as I, I tell you, I went to Puerto Rico in 2018. So since I left trucking in, 20, uh, in 1996, I've probably driven the truck five times or so that required a CDL. But I did drive some tactical vehicles in Puerto Rico. And I got news for you. I would hate to have to drive those things too often because the windows are so small because they're meant for, uh, you know, cover and concealment. So it's like, holy cow, how do you guys see out of these things? But again, they use they use ground guides and all that good stuff. My uh, co-driver and I, when I was hauling military freight, we pulled up to a Navy base in Washington State. And the um, guards that were checking us in, they still had to go on patrol. And they asked us if we wanted to just sit here for like 20 minutes while they did the patrol or if we wanted to ride with them in the Humvee. And I was like, oh, hell yeah. And so we, they stuffed us into the back of that thing and we're bouncing. I mean, this is like a, just out in the woods in Washington state, nothing real crazy, but my God, those things are rough. I couldn't imagine taking those things like really, really off road. We just, it's, it's not a comfy ride. <laughs> well, I, it's like I said, my thing was, is, uh, uh, the trucks I drove were so different from what they have today. I've seen, I watched a, uh, TikTok the other day of a, um, five ton cargo truck from m M54A2, I think it was, that was in a off road show. And the guy rolled it before it was over with. And so, yeah, high center of gravity and all that good stuff. So now they're kind of built lower to the ground and lower center of gravity so they don't roll so easily. What do you think of the new MRAPs that they have now? You know, some of them I like. I think they're interesting. I uh, I think it would have been interesting to, to move over in that phase. when I uh, The reason I left the Army in 85 was because I broke my leg. And uh, they didn't shoot me, but they did put me out to pasture. So. <laughs> <laughs> Well, probably a little more graceful than the uh, the wine. So my my dad was Air Force, and he got out right after Desert Storm and Desert Shield, and so he had 22 years and he retired. But my mom, she switched to reserves, and at that time, they basically told everybody, "Here's a check, take it, have a good life, or you can stick around, and we might kick you out, and you get nothing." Right, and that was another one of my concerns in '85. Is I get up to like 15, 16 years because about 1991 they were letting people out with 10 grand and and no retirement. So mm-hmm. then I would have been like, you know, 35 and I was like, holy cow. I was like, no, what do you do now? Cause I'm kind of, well, actually we've been closer to 40, but yeah. So what do you do now? You got 15 years in the military and, and you're, you're kicked out and, and say, thank you. Don't call us. We'll call you. So do you know if that's still like a problem today or from what I hear, like they, they have just such a hard time finding people that, you know, I, I think they'd just be grateful for anyone that still wants to stick around. Uh, I don't know. It's such a different world. I mean, I heard that in basic training, they have timeouts now. I've seen a lot of the uh, <laughs> uh, activities as far as the way that people are treated. Uh, you know, again, when I was in and we had wall-to-wall counseling. So I don't know if you know what that is, but that's basically where someone, you know, just kind of takes you in the office, closes the door. And if you leave a bloody mess, that's okay. No one said nothing about it because that was <laughs> help get your, your ducks in a row. If if I could somehow hook up like an electric generator to my parents' eyes and just every time they eye roll whenever they hear about what the military is like now, we, we the, there yeah, would be no energy yeah, crisis. No. <laughs> yeah, no, that's what I'm saying. I, it's just such a different world, and and you know, again, society has changed. You know, uh, mm-hmm. mentalities have changed. So you, you, it's just that's what I'm saying. It's just kind of tough to to put it and compare the two generations. 
uh, you know, goodness is, uh, you know, milit- the Marines are big on every, every Marine is rifle in first and your MOS comes second. And the Army is kind of that way, but it's not, they're not real stringent on it. But basically every guy is, and gal is issued an M16 and they're expected to be proficient in it. But I'm not sure if that's still true today or not, because like I said, there's a lot of people that do different jobs. But I know that when uh, I remember I was in a cab unit at Fort Ord and a lady showed up at our unit one day uh, from the 7th Infantry Division. And, and the uh, guys at S1 kind of laughed at her and, and uh, kicked her back and, and, and said, sorry, we're combat arms. We don't take women. And my commander's philosophy was if uh, the Army wanted women, they'd issue one with every sleeping bag. So that's what I'm saying. Just forgive yeah, the uh, non-political correct uh, approach, but that like it's such a different world. Transitioning from military to civilian life, you were behind the wheel. Then you were—I didn't know this—you were you were a vehicle inspector for a while. Well, actually, uh, yeah. So, like I said, is uh, in 1997, I went to work for the scale up at Cortez, uh, Colorado. Here, I live in Albuquerque now. But uh, in '98, I got a chance to go to the north american standard truck inspector course so i was considered a safety inspector i wasn't hazmat qualified but i had to do level one level three inspections at the scales on my inspection days and uh so yeah i did that for a year and then in 99 i got a job at the fmcsa and i bought back my military time so that's what, what i was allowed to do so that's how i got 30 years of federal service i'm friends with a couple guys that um do inspections at scale houses out in California and the posts that they have. I just, it's just like a, it's nightmare fuel for me because they're right there at the grapevine. So they're catching guys, you know, they're saving lives every day, basically. And so you're up in Colorado. Can you give us like some examples of like some of the worst things you've ever seen? Well, um, yeah, I can think of one day a guy came across a scale. It was probably late in the year around November, close to Thanksgiving. And he crossed the scale and, um, I don't know. I had two pages of violations and I think 15 of those were out of service violations. Well, the guy was sick and he wanted to go home. And the thing with, with Cortez was, uh, you know, drivers would park at the truck stop that used to be behind the old scale house. And then sometime during the night, they wouldn't get their truck fixed. They just drive off. (laughs) So that, that's some, something that would happen from time to time. You still see that today to where, you know, drivers wait until the scale closes and they, they drive away. So, you know, worst case scenarios, I don't know. I mean, uh, goodness, um, I'm sorry. It's been too long, but I can't <laughs> to think of in, in each independent violation. No, I, I, I couldn't do that. I mean, are, but, we, are we talking like just busted brake lines, you know, faded, faded uh, pads? Well, um, to give you an example, one, gate, one uh, day I was doing truck inspections and a guy came across the scale and he had an uh, airline that was spliced with a, pair, with a rubber line. It's like, no, you can't do that because uh, basically what happens is that, is that air hose becomes a weak spot in the airline. So you can't do splices in your airlines. So he was put out of service for that. And I know that uh, also that particular guy got hit for a uh, uh, SMEE violation, which is uh, for like mobile equipment, like, you know, bl- dozers blade, uh, and things like that, stompers. And uh, it, that was an interesting day. So I know that uh, I got him because one day I was having some pipe delivered and so he finally paid his SMEE uh, tax for that, but that's a, a different story. But no, it, it's just you know, on the roadsides, each case I take is I don't uh, I don't recall people or names. So my thing is that each time you do it, it's a different occasion. Mm-hmm. Would you say things have gotten worse over time, or stayed the same, or gotten better as far as like the number of failures you, you find uh, when you're inspecting vehicles? Well, I don't do vehicle inspections anymore. Uh, I left the FMCSA in uh, 2010, 
So with the FMCSA between 1999 and 2010, I had to do my 32 level ones a year to stay qualified as an uh, investigator. But I don't know. I think, again, when you look at trucking as a whole, uh, there's 637,000 U.S. DOT numbers. And of those, 537,000 are small businesses of 10 trucks or less. Mm -hmm. So the thing is, uh, the, the inspectors don't get, I don't, I don't think they see half of the trucks they should because uh, scales are uh, fixed locations. So drivers know alternate routes. Uh, drivers drive when they know the scales are closed. So it's just, you know, luck of the draw, in my humble opinion, is if they, if they catch someone, as, then it's a small miracle because the officers just don't send to uh, be able to catch all the stuff that's out there. And that's the problem is, is there's like, what, uh, five, three million trucks in the U.S.? that do interstate commerce and that doesn't include all the local guys yeah and there's not that many law enforcement so that's the thing is uh who knows what get, goes undetected and i i have to think that like because of covid now they have to be short-staffed just like everybody's short-staffed now so who knows what they're not catching now well yeah and then like i said is uh i i recently had a a discussion with um freight ways or freight something he's a owner operator out of the midwest or someplace and he called the FMCSA for some advice on 396.25, which is for the brake inspectors. And whoever spoke to him says, oh, no, don't worry about it. But I don't know if the that person they spoke to was a person at the 800 number in D.C. or the local division office and where whichever state he's in. But, you know, too many people tend to give advice without looking at the regulations and reading what they say because they're too busy. So they go off the cuff and give it, give whatever's on top of their head. That's why I like looking at your TikToks because, like you, when you give responses, I mean, you're nailing everything. You've you've got the exact violation or the code number or the law number. You know, you know your stuff. Well, and that's the whole point is that, and that's what I try to tell people over the decades when I spoke to them is it doesn't matter what someone told you. It's, it matters what's in the regulations and how you interpret it and how you can convey this when you when you discuss it with somebody else that's got you on the roadside. Uh, can you do a data queue and and on a violation because it was uh, inappropriate? So I can tell you that I've encouraged carriers to look at their CSA scores because I've seen trucks that were uh, cited for hydraulic brake violations when it was an air brake truck. Well, it's a technicality, <laughs> but it's a technicality. I'm sorry. Fix that thing. <laughs> if they want to write me a bad ticket, I'll take it. <laughs> yeah. So that's my thing is no, is, you know, is you have to look at those violations and know what they're about and you just can't say, okay, thank you. And then, leave it alone. So the same thing, if you don't check your CSA scores as the owner operator and someone else has got their data on there and you leave it alone one time and it's a good inspection, but the next time it's got 15 uh, out of service violations. Well, good luck trying to get that out of service violations taken off because you accepted the good one first. Coming into this as a independent operator, you know, we have a different view of having to deal with the inspectors and officers. You know, we don't have a you know, a big corporation, self-insurance that, you know, that can handle everything. You know, we have to fork out five, $600 a month for our insurance. We have to make, take the extra time to you know, check our trucks out, pre-trip them as best as we can to make sure everything's all right. You know, uh, over the years, have you been able to tell that drivers are really starting to take better care of their equipment now since we have the, you know, we're in the era of the nuclear verdicts and, you know, everybody's kind of look at truck drivers at a completely different lens. Okay. So James, FYI, uh, are you familiar with financial terms such as ROI? Yep. A good overturn of investment. Okay. So anyway, 
what happens is safety has no R ROI. So the only way you save on safety is by avoiding nuclear verdicts and uh, lawsuits when things go south. So typically what happens is, uh, you know, you let your tires go for an extra, you know, 2,000 miles. You let your brakes go for an extra, you know, a couple thousand miles. Uh, your PMs, you kind of cut back because you, you have this particular shop that charges you $500 a pop to do them. So instead of once a month, you might do it every 45 days. So that becomes the drawback. I'm not pointing any fingers. I'm just giving you facts, okay? Uh, but this is why I, I know that uh, a, a lot of carriers are no asset. In other words, they have owner-operators that drive for them, and they leave the owner-operators to their own accord to take care of their trucks. And that's a mistake because the carrier doesn't realize that their DOT number is the, person, is the responsible party for those trucks. So when you look at Part 396.3, it tells you that you have to have a system that, that tells you when you have to you have to have a schedule. Last maintenance done, next maintenance due. So that's the whole concept. is, And that's what I kind of push hard on because my thing is um, muscle memory, right? So if you're, you're doing something, you, you have a pattern, then you're okay. I can tell you in 2005, I went to a uh, mechanic. Uh, that was an intermodal chassis guy that slammed into a, a bus of little old ladies and uh, killed about 14 people that day at Hampshire, Illinois. And so I went to the mechanic that just signed off on the periodic inspection a week earlier. And I asked him, says, you look at the brakes? Because when they did the post-accident investigation, all the brakes were out of adjustment. So I went to the mechanic and says, so you adjusted the brakes that day. And he's an old Russian guy, heavy accent. And he says, oh, it was snowing that day. Okay, thank you. <laughs> so basically, he charged for the service, but, but didn't, didn't do, do the job. And that becomes a problem because inherently the, the carrier accepted that risk when they drove away without checking the work. And that becomes your nuance is when you accept work people at face value, you let them do the work and there's no quality assurance systems in place to make sure that the work was done properly and uh, things are taken care of. Kind of like that uh, TikTok video I have about the guy that uh, bought new brake cans and the uh, people that did it uh, didn't bother to uncage the brakes. <laughs> I, 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 one thing there's, if you ever go to a truck shop, there's that big sign up there that says, uh, nobody but employees allowed on the platform because of insurance regulations. I hate to tell those guys, I don't abide by that sign. If somebody's working on my truck, I'm over their shoulder. Yeah. I, I cannot stand somebody messing around with my truck and not knowing what's going on with it. Cause I've had a couple of bad run-ins with shop mechanics before and I've, you know, uh, kind of that the don't trust anybody era of professional wrestling i kind of grew through kind of kind of stuck with me you know yeah, <laughs> somebody's you you would see that as a company driver too you know my my when my dad and i were driving <laughs> together they gave us a brand new 2013 uh freightliner coronado and the first oil change we had on it we took it to the ta in ashland virginia and we're watching the mechanic there pick up a bolt kind of look at it and go, huh, and then put it down. And he picked up a wrench, kind of looked at it, and went, huh, and he put it down. And my dad goes, watch this guy. He must have been brand new at the job, which, fine, whatever. You know, you got to train these guys. But we go have lunch. We come back. The oil change is done. Uh, we go about 200 miles down the road, make our delivery, and we park at a hotel for the night. Wake up the next morning. There's just oil everywhere. The new guy there tightened the um, crush nut too tight, and split the brand new aluminum oil pan right in half. Now, because this is a brand new aluminum oil pan, uh, they don't make them 
uh, as much as they need to be. So we were stuck there for about a week while they were uh, waiting for a new part to be delivered. So the TIG welder wasn't there to take care of you, huh? And just patch it up for a few days? No, we sat there and we sat there for a week while we waited for the part. Yeah, no, that's, not, that's what I'm saying, guys. Good help is hard to find in some places. And and like I said, I, I, uh, I've been turning wrenches since 1971. In high school, I took uh, high school mechanics classes. Uh, in the Army, I had to do my own battery swaps outs, uh, you know, and, and things like that. So the mechanics would sit there and kind of tell me what to do and then walk away and come back an hour later and see how I was progressing. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I do have to say, you know, it's kind of, I'm starting to see a lot more drivers kind of learning to work on their trucks and doing their PM uh, due to the fact, you know, it's five, $600 at a shop when you could you know, buy the oil filters yourself for a couple of hundred, you know, just do it out in the yard and, you know, bucket up the oil, take it to the, you know, the county landfill or wherever, you know, recycling center. But, you know, another thing I have about these mechanics, you know, like we were saying, the new guy at the shop, you go, you go to the shop, you look, there's all these plaques that say ASC certified heavy duty mechanic. It makes me, it brings in the question, what about the, this certified mechanic program? If they're getting certified as heavy truck mechanics, yet they can't work on the trucks, you know, is, is, is it just something nice to put on the wall? You know, are they actually, you know, trained mechanics now or just layman's off the street? So I see again is uh, I used to do some volunteer work here in Albuquerque for the American Red Cross. And uh, we were taking the the uh, tr- the cars and, the, and some of the trailers to uh, shops to get them worked on. And, and these guys were doing charging the Red Cross an ungodly amount of money for labor charges sometimes. <laughs> so uh, I worked and they were using one of those um, companies to where you have like a maintenance program and a fuel fuel cart all wrapped into one. Oh, so yeah. uh, what I did uh, is I, I showed them my experience. And so I convinced the company to accept my labor for free. And then, but if I bought parts, I have to charge them for the parts. So that was the whole thing is, is, you know, certifications are okay. And I, I kind of looked into getting that ASWE certification uh, from time to time. But the thing is, is the test questions weren't designed for what I was working on. It was like AC systems and, all, and heater systems. And no, I just want to be able to change tires and lights out. So and that's the problem. Yeah. There's not, it's not designed for what you want to do. But no, and that's the other thing is uh, uh, the shop supervisors have those certifications, not necessarily mechanics on the floor, FYI. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was watching the thing on CNBC the other day. Um, you know, we always hear about the talking point of the truck driver shortage, truck driver shortage. Um, but there actually is like a really big mechanic shortage right now. Guys just aren't going into the trade like they used to. Well, but see, the thing is, I, I mean, I have a love of mechanics. My only problem with the mechanics, though, is that they want you to buy those $10,000 toolboxes and want to pay you <laughs> $18 an hour. So I can understand why. I mean, if you want to supply the tools and pay me 18 bucks an hour, fine. But, I mean, to go that deep into debt and forget $10,000, I mean, now it's like, what, probably $80,000 for a set of tools from Mac or somebody or from uh, Snap-on. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's always fun when you're uh... – at like a smaller shop and you're getting work done and the snap on truck rolls in and everybody goes and hides. <laughs> they, they, they owe that guy some money. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's the problem is, you know, just like, and you know, honestly, I got to tell you, Justin is, uh, here's my, my thing is in SID list, there are something like 6 million pointers for CDL holders. And that includes, you know, people like myself, I still have my CDL, but I haven't driven since 96. Uh, but that includes people that have, have abandoned the trucking industry. So what happens is these larger carriers are bringing these guys in and we're working for $200 a week or $300 a week while they're in training and then putting them, uh, with co-driver with another, another, uh, trainer. And then, uh, 
they're they're making you know money hands over fist in these guys with federal grants for uh, these programs and they're not passing that along to the uh the, the people that are learning the skill and then Absolutely. they work them to death and they they can't get home and so people are abandoning trucking within the first i don't know 90 days first year Absolutely. You're, you're basically describing yeah. the first uh, six months of my job or, or my career behind the wheel. Yeah. It was, uh, it was 70, 72 of us in the class, uh, 17 graduated and got our CDLs. And as far as I know, nobody, I, I think I was the last one still driving a truck and you know, I drive a desk now. But yeah, so that's what I'm saying is, is, so it's not a driver shortage. It's a driver retention issue. And exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I've always thought that, you know, is that it's not going to happen because I said 530 or 537 of the DOT numbers are uh, 10 trucks or less. And those guys can't do interlining. They can't do uh, things like regional runs because they'd have to, you know, relocate. So that becomes the problem for the small business owner operator that's out there trying to get drivers to go to work for them. Because by the time the mega carriers get done and the mega carrier has more drivers. So that 3 million driver population you figure 573 DOT numbers, 10 trucks or less. That's if they, if everybody had 10 trucks, that's only like, oh, like what? Uh, that'd, that'd be 5.73 million, but or 573, uh, yeah, thousand. It, that'd be a million. So yeah, but that becomes a problem. The mega carriers have more drivers than all the small uh, carriers that have 10 trucks or less. And with economies mm-hmm. of scale, you know, they can negotiate for better fuel discounts and better. Exactly. And then not to mention they're they're because their uh fleet is so large, I mean they got their tax attorneys and all that good stuff writing off everything every penny they can. And we know that our millionaires don't pay taxes because they have so many tax write offs. Well that's so that's why a lot of guys, you know, they lease onto a company, but then you'll have companies that take advantage of that because, you know, you want those fleet fuel discounts, you want, you know, the the better freight rates out there. It's it's kind of like a double edged sword right now. And it is, and because like I said, is um, you know, owner operators at least onto uh, carriers, the carrier benefits so much because they have no investment in the uh, uh, assets. So for them, it's a it's a huge thing because all they do they cl- they take the money off the top. They don't pay mm-hmm. for the. I mean, their insurance policy they already have. You know, people like Schneider, J.B. Hunt, uh, Warner, they're probably all self-insured. And I know that up in uh, Denver, Colorado, Navajo Express. And a couple other large carriers with, you know, 500 trucks, they're not self-insured, but what they've done, they've, they've kind of made a coalition and they've started their own insurance company. So you have to belong to this coalition to have that truck insurance at the greatly reduced price. Yeah. Yeah. That was one of the big things, you know, I always noticed like, look, I mean, take Swift, you know, for years they had their own insurance company. I can't remember what the name of it was, but eventually you will have enough wrecks. You will have enough accidents. Your scores will go down so far that even your own self-insurance company won't insure you. So you have to merge. I mean, well, the way that was self-insurance works, uh, James is basically what you do is you put a million dollar bond into a savings account. Yep. And, and then that becomes your, uh, your basically your holding for any kind of losses that occur. So that's the way that works. So then when they're self-insured, they're basically just putting money into a savings account and, and collecting interest. When I was at the Postal Service, they self-insured too, and that's basically a black hole. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, keep in mind that the federal government uh, is not, uh, except for CDLs and drug and alcohol testing, uh, are not subject to Parts 387 through 399. Any government, whether it be state, city, local, county, it doesn't matter. Yeah, so exact, it's tribal. Exact, 
exactly why I went into the postal service. We didn't have log books. We didn't have hours of service. I mean, you had guys that run seven days a week, 12, 16 hours a day, no problem for years. So, but you see, my, my, my issue is this. So like I, my last 10 years with the uh, government, I worked for the office of secure transportation here in Albuquerque, which is within the, uh, which is with the national nuclear security administration, the department of energy. So, I mean, our guys was, again, they were, you know, had to have CDLs and, uh, drug and alcohol testing, but none of the rest apply. But the point was because of the sensitive, mater- the sensitive uh, materials, the drivers had, to, our safety programs were out through the roof. I mean, driver training programs and all that good stuff. So the postal service, again, they've got that obligation to keep the public safe. So they should have an, uh, some tools in place that make sure that their drivers aren't driving fatigued and causing, you know, bad crashes. I would think, I would hope. Well- Yes and no. I mean, we they do safety training and, and all that. Um, but also, the, you, you're not exactly driving. When I say 16 hours, you're not driving for 16 hours straight. It's it's um, you know you, you clock in. First half hour is just you checking in, getting your route, and getting your truck ready. And then you have your route. You know, you make a couple of stops. You go back to the plant. You drop a mail off. Take your lunch. So you're doing your local route. deliveries. Then. Yeah, local deliveries, and then okay, uh, okay, okay. Any any extra overtime you're doing. So the as far as like trips that I did, the longest. I ever did was um, I went from Philly to Trenton and back. And we had one route that used to go from Philly to New York city and back. That's just with the postal service. Now contracting is a whole different ball game. I, when I was a contractor with the postal service, I did all the mail from Philadelphia to um, Raleigh, North Carolina. And the way my route worked was I would drive halfway, meet a driver at that same TA truck stop that cracked my oil pan. And uh, we'd swap trailers and he'd go back to, North Carolina, and I would go back to Philly. So I was home every day, but every single day was a 14-hour workday because I'm driving through that D.C. Baltimore traffic twice a day. Yeah, and I'm sorry, that's that's torture in itself. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> you know why California hasn't fallen in the ocean, don't you? No, why is that? Because New York sucks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, let's take a little break right now. And If you haven't gone to otrsolutions.com slash btu yet, here's your reminder not sure how to say it, but factoring when these guys just make sense. They're focused on driving your success and helping you grow your company. They've gone as far as offering custom website builds and email address setups so you can better negotiate higher rates with brokers. So there is so much opportunity out there, and OTR is your ticket to success. So head on over to otrsolutions.com slash btu and check out their products. Mike, uh, I want to ask you a question. Uh, federal service, uh, you you work with F- FMCSA, government side, and all that. Uh, going through the different, could you tell there was like a different way way things were ran during the different presidential administrations? Uh, sure. Um, I don't know if you remember Rodney Slater or not. Rodney Slater was the the, the Secretary of Transportation when I first started. And I think he left the uh, DOT in two thousand two or so. Uh, Rodney Slater made the promise of reducing all crashes and motor vehicles by fifty percent by the year twenty ten. Well, that was like a shocker because he left office, so he 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 has no tie to that commitment. So that was kind of like a, a hanging chad for the DOT because okay, <laughs> so we've got more trucks on the road, more people on the road, our population is growing, but you want to reduce po- the overall all crashes by fifty percent. So no, we can't do that. There's just no way because it's not feasible because your your growth expansion is kind of causing that to tweak, and you can't do that. So that was uh, worked on for about five years and. I forget what the final slogan was, but it was not 50% by 2010. 
but yeah um <laughs> and that was before the eld mandates and all that came out oh yeah 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 uh, i can tell you that i knew the guy that wrote the new hours of service i mean when i drove back in 92 to 96 it was uh 10 hours driving uh 15 non-continuous hours on duty uh while driving and eight hours off duty to get your uh rest in so in 2002, 2003, when they wrote the new 10, 11, 14 hour rule, the guy that wrote those regulations retired within a month after he wrote the rest. <laughs> I was about to say he got to be, got to be a real popular guy out with truck drivers. Yeah. So that was the, uh, the thing because then the 14 hours became continuous. The 11 hours was an extra hour driving, but they shortened the on duty and the, but the 10 hour break between, uh, to get your zero reset was the killer. So, yeah, I mean, I don't argue with, with everything the DOT does, but, again, keep in mind that our elected officials are responsible for a lot of these laws that come into place. Uh, you, you can look at the transportation bills over the years, and things like CDLs and drug and alcohol testing were mandated by Congress. ELDs were mandated by Congress. Automatic slack adjusters were mandated by Congress. So these were laws that Congress passed and the FMCSA had to implement. And I can tell you there back about mid-2005, 2006, there were several agencies that would beat up on the FMCSA for not uh, implementing rules that Congress had mandated. So it's just a different, I mean, the, the process of making regulations is a nightmare because there's a process that takes uh, probably a year just to write them because they have to go to the Office of Management and Budget for review as well as uh, other agencies to make sure that they don't conflict with existing federal regulations for things like the Paperwork Reduction Act and things like that. So it takes them a long time to get their, their ducks in a row and get those passed before they put them out there to the public for a comment for what they call NPRM, Notice of Proposed Rulemaking. So the then the one. Uh, yeah, so my, once, favorite, my favorite place on the FMCSA website. <laughs> yeah. So well, the well, Federal Register actually publishes all the NPRMs. So they go through the Federal Register, and the Federal Register is the uh, backdrop for every agency out there. So whether it be, you know, uh, firearms, FAA, uh, EPA, whoever, the Federal Register is the point to go to, to to look at those proposed laws. And there's, I think, probably at least probably a thousand a day out there or more. So yeah. if you subscribe to the Federal Register, and you can subscribe by agency instead of getting the whole thing. Because if you go by the whole thing, you're going to get <laughs> Yeah, I wish somebody told me before I did that. Yeah. My, like my, my, next, my next day, it was like 6 a.m. and I had like 300 emails. I'm like, what? Yeah. <laughs> so when you're submitting comments to uh, these things, like what are, the, what are the odds like someone's actually reading these? Like do they just have the email section there because they have to, or is actually, just, no, is there no, I can, I can tell you. Cause uh, you know, so again, in 2002, uh, I can tell you my first comment on a regulation was back about 1997 when I was working for the state of Colorado. And, uh, so I wrote in a, com a complaint because part of the thing was roadside inspectors take shortcuts. So I can tell you, I've seen roadside inspectors that use carpenter, uh, uh, tape measures to measure brake travel. And that's basically where they're standing behind the trailer and they're sticking that stick under the trailer and, and trying to figure out how, how far it's moving. So my thing was, yeah, invest, uh, inspectors take shortcuts. So anyway, uh, uh, what happened is someone from the FMCSA took my comments. Uh, they, well, that time as the Office of Motor Carrier. They took my comments and sent them to my uh, supervisor in Denver, <laughs> Colorado. <laughs> and uh oh, so i, I uh, what i did is on that particular case i went to my supervisor because i got an ass chewing and uh, he says well i want a letter that says you'll never do this again so what i did i went home that night because i was kind of pissed off the more i thought about it and so I, my letter said 
If you ever impose my First Amendment right again, I will go to the HR and I will sue your ass. So yeah, uh, it's, it's done. But uh, I can tell you I did the same thing with the FMCSA and, and the headquarters would send my comments back to my, my division administrator and say, look, Mike can't do this. He has to write us directly. He can't make public comments. That's because you were an employee there? Correct. Mm. So we weren't we weren't supposed to make comments on proposed regulations. But yeah, I would I would think that they they would be open to any comments. Well, they are, but my chain of command was through my chain of command. So I had to send my my comments to the division administrator, who would then send them on to the person that was listed in the uh, comment period. Like, um, God, I can picture his face, but I can't I can't think of his name right now. He's the uh, civil engineer that works for the DOT and does all the uh, or I think he's mechanical engineer. So he does all the mechanical rulemakings, but that's my process. I forgot about the uh, chain of command. <laughs> yeah. So that was the thing. So yeah, they do. But the thing is the way you submit your comments has to be uh, through a different path. But yeah, I think they do. Cause when you read the uh, final rulemaking, they put the comments that were made that they used for consideration in the rulemaking process. The ones they thought were important. Oh, that's good. So, so there, so there actually is some poor bureaucrat that has to read through all the good oh, comments yeah. and just the 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 screed the screeds. <laughs> and you know, don't take me wrong. I don't think they read them all verbatim. I mean, we're all guilty of that, right? When you get an email, you read, you look for keywords, and then you, you respond, and that's the reason why no one. I don't send long emails no more because no one ever reads them. Exactly. Yeah. So, so the we, point uh, is, is uh, you know, keep keep your your comments succinct, succinct, and to the point. Uh, don't do the dissertation because otherwise it's just going to be kind of passed over. Yeah. I didn't know this was like a thing until, um, you know, a few, actually a first episode of the show, um, our friends, uh, Lisa and Leland Schmidt, we learned that they were filing for an exemption with the FMCSA for, um, the hours of service rules. And they just texted me this morning about another driver, um, who's filing as well. And the difference between their filing and his filing is like an encyclopedia volume in a cave painting. Right. So what do you what do you think about a lot of these drivers that are uh, filing for exemptions? Well, I mean, I I tend to my thing is uh, the regulations have to be changed. If there's we don't need exemptions, we need to go back and look at the uh, uh, regulations and change them so they they're it makes sense. I can tell you uh, back about when the FMCSA was first started in 2000, there was talk about zero based regulations. But as mentioned, zero based regulations would be a nightmare, take decades to pass through. But that's the issue. I can tell you that some of the interpretations out there with the FMCSR on the FMCSA's guidance page, they're obsolete because they're, they talk about a time span when things are different. For example, the uh, uh, comment on the uh, recommend, the interpretation on doing brake uh, adjustments they're over the phone. So the NTSB and all the brake manufacturers tell you, no, you got to clean and lube your uh, your automatic slack adjusters but if they're out of adjustment, there's probably they're probably malfunctioning. Your best bet is to replace them, not adjust them, because what happens five miles later, they're back out of adjustment. So that becomes the nuance: is you adjust the brakes, and you know five minutes later they could be back out of adjustment because the, you broke something in the process. And you know even Bendix tells you in their videos that when you apply that extra torque to those paws, you're causing some wear, excessive wear on those paws, and, and there's a good chance that they're not going to function as long as they should have. So you think a problem is that the people writing these laws have absolutely no idea what actually is it? Like how many how many congressmen do you think, or congresswomen for that matter, have CDLs? Well, and you know, Justin, the thing is, is keep in mind is that, um, like I said, is you know, people say talk about CDLs, but the only place the CDLs required is in Part 382 and 383. 
So when you look at part 390.5, the definition of a commercial motor vehicle, look, the definition of a commercial motor vehicle is 10,001 pound or more, seats 15 passengers or more, including the uh, driver, or carries placard quantities of hazmat. So, you know, when you look at table one, any quantity of hazmat you transport hat requires a class C CDL. So there's people out there that drive Suburbans or uh, pickups that require CDLs, a class C CDL with the hazmat endorsement because they're transforming placard quantities of hazmat. Mm-hmm. And that becomes the nuance. So the hours of service kicking at 10,001 pound, not 26,001 pound or more. Because of what they're hauling, not, not the weight of the vehicle? Well, because uh, Part 390.5 sets the definitions for Parts 391 through 399. So that becomes the nuance. The definitions in Part 382 and 383 only apply to those sections. So um, when you look at the interpretations in Part 390.5, that applies to Parts 390 through 399. So that becomes nuanced. So things like uh, your pre-trip inspections, uh, periodic inspections, DOT medical driver qualification files, um, driving a commercial motor vehicle, you know, things like handheld devices, seat belts. That's all starts at 10,001 pound or more. Hmm. Does, does that kind of make sense? Sort of, I guess. I mean, my, my point was just people that write the laws for these things don't have any experience actually doing the thing. Like when, right. when they have, when they have a law that says they want to slash accidents by 50%, it's like, okay, how do we do that? They have no idea. Right. They just have an idea and they say, go do it. Um, when like the ELD mandate came out, I knew that this was going to increase accidents because now instead of getting drivers, instead of, so the paper logs are basically an IQ test. There's all kinds of ways you could wiggle around, you know, the rules and regulations on those. Um, but there's no cheating the ELDs. I'm sure there's like a couple no, of well, there's ways to cheat on them. <laughs> there are. Yeah. yeah. It, it, just, it's, it's, it just cuts it down greatly. But, yeah. you know, the thing is, Justin, what happens, though, is you've, you've gone from violating one regulation, 395.8, and falsifying your log, to violating other regulations, speeding, driving fatigued, and all that good stuff. Because those 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 uh, regulations are out there. You can't drive ill or fatigued, and you can't, uh, you know, drive a bond above the uh, speed limit posted on the, on the highways. So that becomes the the nuance. You you've just gone you just kind of switched lanes. You know, you're you're right that you know drivers went from uh you know falsifying their logs to now violating other regulations that are still a violation. So that's my that's my nuance. They're also driving a lot more recklessly too now because they have to beat the clock. You know, before when you had paper logs, the clock didn't matter as much as long as you got to where you needed to go safely, you just had to make it make sense on paper. Whereas now you've got the clock ticking right in front of your face all day long. And you, the whole point is I got to get there. I got to get there. I got to get there. And whenever you've got somebody in a high pressure situation, that's when accidents happen. And when, when you drove, Justin, do you recall how many times a day the same driver might pass you on the highway? Uh, not off the top. I mean, maybe something, it depends when I was, when I was driving for Schneider, I was passed all the time. <laughs> and, but, then yeah, was... and that's what I'm saying, but that's the, the point. So I can tell you, uh, I, again, I drove out of Colorado. So I, I used, you know, I 80 and I 10 and I 20 on a regular basis. And I can tell you that, you know, was, uh, my truck was probably 65, 72, somewhere about there. So, I mean, I, can, I can't tell you how many times that I would uh, be putting along and the same driver would probably pass me every every two or three hours because oh, he, they stopped it. Well, no, because they stopped at every truck stop. Oh, I see. Yeah. So they're stopping to go pee. They're stopping to go, you know, go, go, uh, you know, chat or call it because, you know, again, no cell phones back in those days. <laughs> so we had to stop at, at truck stops and, and use pay phones. So that, no, that was, just, 
wasn't wasn't okay. so much of that when I was driving because I was maybe nowadays if I was driving I'm, I'm I'll be 39 tomorrow. Um, but I was in my late 20s, early 30s when I was driving. So I, you know, my my record and this was fully legal. I had ELDs at the time. But my record was 813 miles in one day, and that was we were driving out west, and our truck was our truck could do if you were flooring it, it could do 80, but it was governed. The cruise was governed at 75 and yeah, we just ran flat out one day and this was before the, the 30 minute break rule was in effect. And I got in the driver's seat, logged in, floored it for 11 hours straight, pulled into the next truck stop. And I went, holy crap, 18, 813 miles. Yeah. So that's what I'm saying is, is, you know, in my humble opinion, a 30 minute break is a good thing because after a while you tend to zone out and you, your, your ability to focus on, on task. I can tell you that when I drove, uh, I do mathematical problems in my head. I would think about things about why can't I just do a uh, a time jump and take the time off at the end of my life? Because, you know, driving for those 11 hours or 10 hours back in those days, like, holy cow, are we there yet? Oh, yeah, man, it must have been so rough back then because nowadays you got satellite radio, you got podcasts, you got audio books. Well, I guess back then you'd have books on tape, but no. it's not, it's well, not uh, the same thing. You know, thing. yeah, hit, trying to find a, you know, because, again, that was probably cassette tape days, that, uh, 92, 96. Maybe, maybe uh, the trucks, I don't think I ever saw a CD player in a truck. We had cassette players, but no CDs. Hmm. So, yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's it's a it's a fine balance between you know having nothing in the truck is detrimental because then now you're running the risk of like you said zoning out. But then you when you have too many things in the truck, now they're distractions. You're you know you have five different LED screens in your face if you're driving at night. You know it makes it harder to see. Um, you know if you'll have notifications. It doesn't matter if you're on your phone or not. If you get notifications on your phone, that's still something distracting you while you're driving. You're getting well, messages on messages on right. your Qualcomm. So what was it? Uh, Qualcomm was the big thing that Schneider and those guys used to have. Uh, Warner had a system similar to that, so that the the uh, dispatchers could send you know messages at any time. So I know that the uh, after a while those kind of, those guys got in trouble and they had to they had to disable the Qualcomm while the truck was in motion because otherwise the drivers were trying to read the the messages going on the highway. Yeah, when I was yeah. driving solo, the the Qualcomm would be disabled, but if you're a team truck it's still enabled so that, you know, quote unquote, the passenger. Yeah. Can read the Qualcomm while you're driving. Oh, but never mind. They're in the sleep berth. They're supposed to be getting their 10 hours rest or right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause that's the other thing. There's an interpretation that tells you that, you know, if you're constantly sending messages that disrupts the uh, sleep birth time, that's a violation as well. <laughs> I, I like, I used to get in trouble cause they would, um, they, they warned me that the Qualcomm charges them per the character that they're sending. And so I would get messages from my dispatchers that looked like it was a text from like a 12 year old. It was like, are you question mark? You know, it's like you're reading hieroglyphics. And then I would send back basically like, you know, entire paragraphs of all the details. And they're like, please stop <laughs> think, using so many characters. I think Qualcomm was charging like a, a, a Santa character or something like that. Which is crazy. Yeah, it's just it's just going up to the satellite and, and coming back to Earth. They're not literally moving chunks through the air. So I don't know if you remember or not, but I mean, cell phones when they first came out, the thing was that there was day use and then there was nighttime use nice. and there was weekend. <laughs> yeah, so that was the thing. You know, we'll call me back after six p.m. or nine p.m. because it just depended on which cell phone plan you had. Because during the day, your your rates were through the roof, but after nine p.m. or six p.m., they kind of dropped off a little more affordable. Well, that's because that's all the towers are being clogged up, right? Well, that's not as many, and, and just the fact there's new service, and they could, and, and that was just the industry standard. I mean, obviously, yeah. is uh, I remember when Ma Bell got broke up, and, and uh, because they were considered a, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, monopoly. Monopoly, thank you. But yeah, 
That was the, I remember that was the big news when uh, everyone got the piggyback on Ma Bell's uh, phone lines. They spent you know hundreds of millions of dollars in planting, and now they had to share them with with everybody else. So that was kind of hurtful. I mean, it's like you. So they invested all that money in the infrastructure and put those lines down. Well, then they broke up the monopoly, and now you know everybody could use those lines that Ma Bell installed. Just like with the cable companies right now, that's that's why nobody wants to invest money in the cable companies. Well, you know, the other thing is with EVs. Uh, my house was built back about 1952, and so it took P&M a year to add a transformer to my neighborhood so I could turn on my AC and solar panels. And I'm now I'm seeing the same thing with electrical contractors that are trying to, when people are buying these electric cars and wanting to bring them home and hook them up to their current uh, power system, the, the power systems weren't designed to, to, to handle all that amperage. So now what happens, they have to upgrade their system to uh, different wiring to support that uh, system, and, and it's causing a lot of homeowners a lot of grief because they, they're having to spend thousands for contractors to come and redo their house. Yeah, we just uh, sold our house uh, last month. And back in December, we decided that we were going to have solar panels installed. This was before we knew we were selling. And when they came by to, you know, go through the plan and everything, they were like, oh yeah, this meter needs to be upgraded. Cause they, you know, when you have a, a solar panel on your roof, you need to have a meter that can, the meters don't actually spin anymore. It's a, it's a digital monitor, but that's the wording that they were using. It's like they, you need a monitor that can uh, spin both ways or a, a meter that can spin both ways. And that was something I like, I hadn't even thought about. I was just like, Oh, they're just going to put the panels on the roof and flip the switch and we'll be, we'll be good to go. But no, it was like yeah, a no. six month long process. <laughs> I miss it. We, uh, we had, we had the system on for 18 days uh, before we sold the house and I got the first electric bill and it was for like 13 cents. Well, you see, that's the other thing here in New Mexico is they're, they cut back on their buying. So my electric bill went from $7 and 31 cents a month to $70 a month. So that's what happens that, that they have that five year contract where they get the government grants. And then after the government grants run out, then the electric bill is impacted severely because the uh, power company has other resources that where they make their own power and they don't want to buy your power. Yeah. I think the way our company, so we, we, we leased our system and I think the way that they make their money is they just have a bigger pool of electricity that they can sell back to the electric companies. Cause they were telling us like, if we'd bought our system, I'll just, I don't know the exact numbers, but say like our, our bill was for 14 cents per kilowatt hour usage. If we were selling our power back to them, it'd be at like one cent per kilowatt hour, whereas they had a much better rate with the electric company. And so that would reflect on our electric bill. So here's, here's the hiccup to that though, because now you're leasing that, uh, those panels, when you sell the house, you have to be able to transfer that lease. And that's a nightmare. A lot of people don't want that lease. We, exactly. so yeah, we, we actually lucked out. Our, our company was, was very easy. It was literally just like, we signed a piece of paper. The guy that was buying our house signed a piece of paper and he took over the lease. Oh, okay. Yeah. That was, that was my one. When I was like asking around about installing a solar system, like I hadn't even thought about selling the house at the time, but my uh, car mechanic, that's what he said. He's like, yeah, we had ours. And when we sold our house, it was a nightmare to transfer it. And that was like the first thing I asked these guys. I was like, how easy is it to transfer the, the lease? And they're like, oh yeah, it's not a problem. And then our realtor was like, no, they tell everybody that, but it actually worked out really well. <laughs> and I'm in a townhouse well, now, so we, we, we can't have a solar system on our roof. Yeah, and HOA. Not not just that, also just the, the physical like size of the roof. You know, even okay. if I had panels up here, there just wouldn't be enough to... Put them you in know, your backyard. It. Yeah, well, <laughs> not, not much of a yard here. But yeah. at, least, at least at this place, we, we have gas in central air. What, what, was, what was killing us at the old house was... Um, the baseboard heat, everything in the house was electric, electric heating, electric AC, um, 
but the baseboard heating is just super inefficient. And our first electric bill in the winter when we lived there was $800. Ouch. Yeah. And so we we're like, that's when we were like, okay, we're getting solar. And uh, yeah, it was, it was great. I miss it. Yeah. If, if you live in an area and you're not selling your house for a while and you want to get solar, definitely look into it. The, the pricing is very reasonable. I think ours, so our typical electric bill would have been like between 180 to 180 in like the spring and autumn and 280 in the summer. And then of course in the winter, it like spiked like crazy, but our payment every month to our uh, solar company was 131. And then we wouldn't have any electric bill from that because the, okay. uh, the, the, number, the number of panels we had was more than enough to uh, hmm. uh, supply power to the house. And then in New Jersey, depending on what state you're in, so New Jersey has net metering. So whatever excess energy you have gets put into a, a basically a bank account. So when you go over uh, your bill the next month, it just gets pulled from that, that, that bank account. Because we asked them about putting a battery system on, and they're like, yeah, you can do that, but it's going to be like an extra 150 a month on your lease, and it's just not worth it. So I know this is back to truck up, but we're talking solar now. <laughs> hey, hey, solar trucks, man. Well, my trucks, thing was, man. E- was EVs, and that's my thing. Is that, Again, they're they're pushing these things, and that's the whole point. That's uh, the reason yeah. why I'm on that topic. Cause, and again, it's the same thing with uh, you know police departments are buying EVs, and the trucking companies are buying EVs. I think UPS has got a whole fleet of, of electric trucks now that they're using. But, UPS does does a lot of things. Like they have natural gas trucks, diesel, electric. Uh, I know the Postal Service just put in a, a buy order for I think a, a quarter of their. So next so gen Justin, fleet. You, you know the reason why they do that, don't you? With the Postal Service or just other companies? Yeah, well, uh, other companies like UPS. I would assume it's just they're throwing a thousand things at the wall and seeing what sticks. Well, that and federal grants. Oh, they, okay. It's yeah. just like it's just grants. like there's a company here in uh, yeah. So there's a company down here in New Mexico. Uh, I think it's uh, something Valley. They're down out of the Las Cruces. So for years, you see their truck. They have all the, like the wheel disc and the side skirts. And um, they're usually blue trucks with white trailers. And something Valley. What the heck's that name of that company? I can't think of it right now. But basically, they got a grant from Uncle Sam to test all the, the fuel efficiency of all these devices. So, because again, these devices cost money. So the question mm-hmm. is: Is the money to for these fuel efficient devices uh, uh, enough of an offset to uh, justify the cost of them, and how long would it take to do, again your return on investment? So yeah, there's a, th- those guys got a pretty good sized chunk of change from Uncle Sam to buy all this equipment and do some uh, tests to uh, you know uh, hash out how effective things like wheel discs, side skirts. The uh, what's the little air dams to open on the back of the trailers? Those things. Yeah, close uh, up that gap. So, do you know what the results of any of those are? I know, like I see side skirts on tons of trailers now, so I, I have to. Well, that's because those were uh, were were uh, determined by the EPA to be efficient, so that's the reason why they're out there. But so, now it, the, the it's, problem it's one is, thing. It's, it's one thing for for them to say it was determined, but like, do they have any data to back that up? Sure, they do. But the thing is now, but. Uh, so now that once they turn like 15 years old and they're all dry and brittle from being exposed to the sun because there's some sort of a polymer mm-hmm. and you got to replace them. Uh, so what's, you know, again, is that or you take the drivers that hump those things and break them down before they're even, they reach their full lifetime exactly. or their go side over, crashes. Go over so a lot of yes. train tracks. <laughs> and another thing too, those side skirts, they're not, they're designed to be run on flat ground. If you ever back into a dock and that dock's got a, an angle downward, when you back down down to that dock, right. those side skirts rubs on the concrete or asphalt, and it's like spreads them out and breaks them. Yeah. Right. So that's what I'm saying. That's the part that they don't see, and and especially when you have a, such a narrow uh, group, a focus group that determines the efficiency of them. Okay, because they're, they're in more of a controlled environment. 
So, but in California, I heard you can't go to California without them. Yeah, you gotta have so much. Uh, you gotta have so much like uh, fuel efficiency standards. You gotta have side skirts. You gotta have uh, air, the, the little the, air dams on the yep on the back of the cabs. On the, yeah, the little the 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 wings or whatever you want to call them, the flares or whatever whatever that term is. You know, you gotta have so much fuel efficiency to operate in California, which. That's not going to matter much to, you know, like, what is it, 2030, 2035? They want to get rid of diesel power trucks, do all EV heavy trucks? Well, but that'll be only for uh, companies that are based in California. So, and I, I think, again, is the question there becomes interstate commerce versus intrastate commerce. So, us I'm saying, so I, I, I haven't looked into that stuff because, for number one, I don't care. <laughs> it's California. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. Unfortunately, what happens in California tends to spread across the rest of the country. Well, sometimes. Um, I, but I, I think that sometimes that, you know, people recognize that uh, the nonsense associated with it and they, they, they don't go that way. I think, um, you know, Wyoming and Florida are two states I can think of that don't take federal grants. They kind of told the uh, feds, the, you know, thanks, but no thanks. We make enough money off of our, our local resources, and we don't need you guys. But Florida makes uh, sense because of the tourism, but what does Wyoming have? Oil. Uh, minerals. Oil. Minerals. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And that in their population. I mean, they don't need much to support the population. You know what true, I mean? true. So, that's the, so what they do make off of minerals and oil and all that good stuff, it's, it's enough to suffice. So uh, Wyoming's not big on federal grants. <laughs> So, okay, with, with the EVs and stuff, now we have, uh, who was a rooster? International just saying that their next motor, like that's Yeah, it. International that's just uh, come out that the uh, the S13 motor that eight, they're starting building next October is going to be their last internal combustion engine. They're going to go all uh, electric and uh, alternate power. And, I mean, that thing is in everything from trucks to school buses. Yeah, I mean, so, uh, these- International's got, like, this well-established brand you know, between the school bus fleet, you know, what's their competition? The Bluebird. Uh, they also got a lot of you know, box trucks, you know, a lot of home improvement stores have contracts to provide them, you know, all these uh, delivery trucks you see from home for uh, Home Depot and Lowe's, you know. Yeah, my worry is that these aren't market forces that are taking us in this direction. A lot of this is just mandates coming down from the government. And, you know, you'd see this all the time. I'm sure you can vouch for this too, Mike, where they'll have a mandate and two to three years into it, it's not going to plan. And rather than stepping back and going, okay, we're doing this wrong. Let's regroup and, and see what we can do instead. They just go, oh, we're just not doing it hard enough. Well, see, the problem is just once a law passes, it's on the books forever. Yeah. And that, that becomes the, the problem. I know that uh, part of my argument recently, my last comment on the uh, speed limiters, uh, because the thing is that's been before the House of Representatives three times and it's failed at least three times that I know of. And so about that time frame, the uh, SCOTUS came out and told the EPA that they can't just arbitrarily create rules without Congress passing laws first. So there's nothing in the FMCSR right now that, that mentions speed limiters. So in my humble opinion, that's along the same mindset. The FMCSA just can't go out there and arbitrarily create a law or regulation that's mandated because Congress can't pass it. So we'll see how that that plays out. So I would hope that someone takes the initiative. Uh, the ATA, the problem there is they're on the side of the large trucking companies who support <laughs> the uh, speed limiter mandates. Absolutely. But uh, there are organizations out there, like I said, such as the Small Business Trucking Coalition and uh, OIDA, that hopefully they I know they've done some stuff to uh, 
pass depth that's more aimed towards the owner operators and small fleets. I've been saying that any any lawmaker that wants to pass a speed limiter law needs to be stuck behind two semis trying to pass each other doing 55, going home and to work every single day. I mean, a lot of what we see with the speed limiters is coming out of a out of a Europe. They're mandating speed limiters in all their motor cars, you know, in the next couple of years. So, you know, this is just uh, more of these mandates we see coming out of Davos, Switzerland. So, you know, James, I, I did two tours in Germany uh, between 1978 and 1982. Uh, so, I mean, Germany's the size of Oregon. Uh, yeah. So that's my problem. And, you know, the UK, the United Kingdom is the same way. I mean, it's, it's Ireland, Scotland, and uh, England. So they're all under one uh, monarchy. But it's called, that's what you know, it's the United Kingdom. It's kind of like the United States. Yeah. But that's the problem. These countries, they're they're uh, the size of a state in the U.S. So it bothers me when people want to compare and say that they're going to do this in Europe, so they need to do it in the U.S. Well, no, because it's it's not the same thing. What's Russia doing? What's uh, Australia? <laughs> what's Australia doing? Let's go look at those guys. Well, yeah, it's, it's easier. Really- it's it's easier to roll this stuff out in these small countries because you know they they're test beds basically. If they get it to roll out these small countries. Then they can go on national television or global television and say, hey, this is what this country is doing. It It's great. Why don't we do it here? And like you're saying, look how much larger the U.S. is. Look how much larger Russia is, you know, China. So you know? I can tell you on my, on my tours in Germany, the Autobahn, there was no speed limit. Yeah. So I, I just wonder how the Germans feel about that kind of stuff. Because, again, the Germans are the well, home. Well, there, the there is. There is now a speed limit on the Autobahn, but it's a, it's that of infamous quote of as fast as safety allows or however you want to um, term it yeah that's always been one of my bucket list items is uh getting a renting a, a fast car and going on the autobahn <laughs> renting a supercar and going down the autobahn at, uh, yeah. and at like, 200 mile an hour there's, there's plenty of companies that offer that but man it's 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 looking like that's going to be a uh you know not, I, not feasible I was in the in back a of, of a uh eight m881 day which was a dodge three-quarter ton pickup four by four and there's like five of us in the back of this this truck, and then a couple drivers in the front, and and the guy and, and the driver pulled out on the uh, autobahn there outside of uh, Erlenzi, and there's a car coming, and I could see the and we could see the car was flashing their lights like a mile away, and this guy must have been coming over 100 miles plus, and I'm telling you, by the time that guy stopped and not hit the truck, you could probably fit your hand down there and and pinched your knuckles, like mm. holy cow, we're about to die. That's yeah, probably so, not such yeah. a bad idea. They have the speed limits now. Yeah, so I was just saying, I, I don't know. and that. But again, the problem was if the guy would have stayed in the right lane, it probably wouldn't have been so bad. But for whatever reason, he decided to pass the car in the, in the right lane and get in the left lane. It's like, oh, my God, wait, no, 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 no. Yeah, that's very so, surprising because yeah. they, they pretty much ingrained from birth the, uh, the the idea of keep right, pass left. Right. See, in Germany, though, is the, the whole concept there is uh, your license, to get your license is very expensive. You have to go to a lot of driving schools, and you have to – that's a pretty ringent test to get your driver's license in Germany. But, you know, it's nothing like in the U.S. I mean, you go down and take your eye test and you take the, the multiple guest test and maybe a road test around the block. And to give you an example, my uh, ex-wife was from the Philippines. So we lived in Fort Collins, Colorado. Well, she couldn't pass the driving test in Fort Collins, Colorado. So I took her over to the, to the uh, MVD in Loveland, Colorado. So it's much easier there, much less traffic and a lot easier. So even then, the the, the gal that passed her says she needs to practice. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> it, it all depends on what state you're in too, because like Florida, there is no well, at least in West Palm Beach, Florida, where I took mine, um, they don't test for parallel parking. They had like a basically a little road course uh-huh. behind the building, and it's some stop signs, and you pull over and you park, and you know, there's no hills in Florida, but they simulate parking on a hill and curving your vehicle. But that was it. Whereas other states, I know Indiana, I believe Indiana. My dad got his license. He the first thing they did was they had him parallel park the station wagon his his family owned, and he parallel parked it perfectly. And the uh, instructor at the time was like, "Well, shoot, if you can do that, you pass." <laughs> well, just so you you talked a little bit about my my recommendations for new drivers. So here's my recommendation: okay. uh, understand that your CDL is a tool, and dispatchers. Uh, are paid to get you to break the regulations and not necessarily in your best benefit mm-hmm. so or your best interest. So make sure you, you have the, that little green uh, book that you can get at the truck stops that says the motor carrier regulations and be familiar with part 395, 392. Okay, 395 is the hours of service. 392 is the operation of a commercial motor vehicle. And 391, which talks about your DOT medical card. Because the biggest thing now is that when your DOT medical expires, you have to go to there's the FMCSA has instructions state by state to upload your DOT physical to link to your uh, CDL, because if your DOT physical is not linked to your CDL, your CDL is now a Class D driver's license or no driver's license at all. So what ha- what's happening is uh, drivers are being put out of service because their DOT medical is not linked to their CDLs. Exactly, and and fax it or email it yourself. Don't. Give it to your dispatcher. Do, do what I do. Do what I do. Just hand deliver it to the driver's license service center. That way you know it's done. But but even at that, James, you need to pull your MVR and make sure it's linked because your yeah. your medical your your MVR will say medically certified. And part 391.51 uh, 62 tells you that if it's not medically certified, you can't drive a CMV. So that requires a CDL anyway. So, and even, and that's the other thing. And the other thing is, is when it comes to uh, hotshot drivers, you have to carry your DOT physical with you. You don't need to have a CDL necessarily, but in that case, if you're just driving it, if it's up to 26,000 pounds or less, uh, you need to have your, your DOT physical with you. So understand the difference uh, of the regulations based on the size of the vehicle you're working. Because uh, like I said, the RV drivers that drive, take RVs out of Indiana to various locations, uh, the interpretations tell you for the hours of service that when you deliver that RV, if your truck now is, has a GVWR of 10,000 pounds or less, you have to log on duty back to Indiana. It's not driving because it's not a CMV, but because you're going back to Indiana to reload, you have to you have to uh, log on duty time. Hmm. So that's the whole point. And if you're not sure, uh, you know, drop me a line. Uh, my email address is awmassociates at gmail.com. That's awmassociates, plural, at gmail.com. Uh, if I get too overwhelmed, I just might block you. But <laughs> I, I, can, I can delete emails just pretty easily, so it's no big issue with me. But uh, that's just my recommendation, guys and gals. And keep in mind, it doesn't matter what somebody told you. It matters where you can show in the regulations what it says. All right? But that's my two cents on that kind of stuff. But no, I, I got I'll, I, I got more time to chit chat. There's other topics you guys want to talk about for a little while anyway. I got some calls to make to get my my other job done. Yeah, actually, I I, I can't believe we, we we forgot this one. What got you into TikTok in the first place? 
Oh, you're, you know, um, you're, you're an older guy, and, and I'm I'm gonna be one eventually. Um, but it, the TikTok is a young person's game. So, uh, Mad Max is uh, I've known him for 25 years. I knew him off an old trucking bulletin board called uh, Trucknet. Uh, so I met uh, Mad Max and a couple other characters uh, in 1998 after I became a, uh, a safety inspector. But like I said, when me and computers, like I said, I used to be an old mainframe tech, so uh, I'm pretty, I guess semi-intelligent when it comes to electronic devices. I find them interesting, but I also find them to be a pain in the butt. But uh, my thing is now is that TikTok is too, uh, it's it's almost annoying because so much misinformation out there and you see how, how many people are misguided on their on their concepts and their thoughts. So you can't fix the world, unfortunately, but maybe one spot at a time. But it, it's just interesting. I'm semi-retired, so it helps kill my evening because I, I hate watching the nightly news. Um, and as far as, uh, you know, taking vacations and stuff, if I'm on the road, then I catch it up in the evening or something like that. But it's just a uh, a distraction to help me keep, I guess, uh, track of what people are thinking and how the people are doing in the world today. I get a lot of TikToks off the trucks, off the truckers network because that's where I, I kind of tend to spend a lot of my time. Yeah, Max is, Max is a great follow. I've been trying to get him on the show too, but he's he's like the leopard. He's the uh, Walmart driver you're talking about, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, he's great. Yeah, and, and just like you, a lot of you guys, you know, you you've been you've been doing this for a long time. You're not really just talking off the top of your head. Um, you you know your stuff. You know the the laws and and the regulation numbers. And same with same with Max. He's a he's a great follow as well. Well, let's let's go back to the advice for new drivers. You know, every, you always see advice for new drivers everywhere. What advice do you have that with, for drivers that are currently thinking about uh, hanging up the hanging up the boots? You know, and coming out of trucking. You know. Is there life after trucking? Uh, well, okay. So in my case, uh, what happened is I got a uh, a veteran. So I got the I convinced the VA to, to re-educate me because my I was part of the Vietnam era uh, GI Bill. And what happened is when Congress gives out these GI bills, they're only good for a certain amount of time, and they they, they chop off the block and you're done. So if you didn't use that that uh, you know GI Bill in the time span that you were given. It goes away. So if you're if you are a veteran and have educational benefits available to you, use them, because Congress can come out in within uh, next three years and say, okay, you got five years to use them, and they're gone, and then that's it, they disappear. So now your only other alternative is to get student loans. But no, I uh, like I said, I, I kind of got lucky uh, with my trucking background. I got into the, in my computer background. I was hired by the state of Colorado at the, at the scale in Cortez uh, with my you know, background in uh, safety inspectors. I got on with the Office of Motor Carrier. Uh, with the with my background from the Office of Motor Carrier uh, or the FMCSA, I was hired by the Department of Energy as a transportation management specialist. So it's 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 a, a task. I mean, but there's jobs out there that you can do. But you know, remember that any job you take is a choice. And you know, trucking is my thing. Was uh, when my second son was born, I just I, I had other responsibilities and, and like drivers say leaving your family behind is a nightmare so you, yeah. you've got those those choices to make and you know even when you get a job sometimes well now you're not on the road uh, for three weeks but now you're out of the home like you know justin's or said your 14 hour work days by the time you get home all you want to do is go to bed and take a shower yep. yeah <laughs> so yeah it's, it's a trade-off i mean but find your niche uh, find what makes you happy because the thing is, it doesn't matter necessarily how much money you're making. Is are you happy in the job you're doing? 
So that's the my my advice as a guy that will be 67 here in October. Yeah, uh, first off, Mike, yeah, thank you for your service being a, a army veteran. You know, that's a occupation I try to get try to get involved in, but couldn't uh, make the health make the fitness test work in my favor. But you know, thank you on that, uh, ladies and gentlemen. I'm James Rooster Bowen. That was uh, Justin Super Trucker Martin. We had uh, Michael Millard here today, and uh, we will catch you guys down the road.